Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore and Evan Grant. Hello, David. What's the update on OBJ? Well, OBJ saw a stirring Mavericks victory over the Phoenix Suns after meeting with the Jones family, uh, doing his medical and uh, meeting with some coaches on Monday. Um, He remains in Dallas. We'll have more meetings today. Uh, We'll meet with the team's leadership council, which is about 12 to 14 players uh, on the team. Uh, And they just want to make sure it's a good fit. As Jerry Jones says, it has to be a good fit for both sides. They're still trying to determine that. Um, Whether or not it's a good fit for the Cowboys this season is going to come down to the medical um, he is. He did not work out for the Cowboys. Hadn't worked out for uh, any other of the teams that he visited, the New York Giants or Buffalo Bills. And uh, if he was ready to go right now, he would go through a workout, right? So I think you have to question whether or not, with where he is in his rehab, would he be able to play uh, the remainder of this regular season? And if you're just looking at a postseason run, does that make sense? So I think. Uh, from what I can tell, those are the things that they're sorting through right now to see if this is going to work. But this is the whole reason why they—the whole reason they're getting him—is for the postseason, right? I mean, that, to, to me, that's what—that's what he was last year for the Rams. He was okay during the regular season, uh, but it was when the Rams—they're in the postseason and in the Super Bowl and, and in the NFC Championship game when it—you know—he made all the difference uh, for Los Angeles. Well, yeah, but he played in the regular season, right? So you knew he'll be available in the postseason. There, there's sure, a difference sure. Yeah, you want a guy not playing at all in the regular season and just saying, <laughs> well, hey, he'll be here in the postseason if we need him. So I think yeah. um, th- that's where it is. I, I think where he actually physically is in his rehab window and what's the most realistic scenario or timetable on which he can come back, uh, I, I think we'll have a, a the, the will be the driving force, I think, and whether or not this works out. So what do you think? Up or, up or down? Is it going to happen or not? I thought before it would happen, and I've always looked at it as a luxury, not a necessity. Look, he's we've seen what this offense has done. You know, it scored 199 points over the last five games, which is the most prolific five-game stretch within a season in Cowboys history. Uh, he is not an essential worker in this offense. He he is a luxury. But, you know, if you find yourself down 21-10 going into the fourth quarter of a game, that is where uh, he can give you a lot of value and just the threat of him on the field uh, is going to be more beneficial to you. I thought before uh, that, that they would sign him because it was, it was all an upside. Um, but it, if the medical, if he's not ready to play this season – I'm not sure why you would devote that money to him next year uh, with where you are on the cap. So I'm actually a little less uh, optimistic. So can I put my can I put my finger in the middle pointing down? You know, David, just be careful how you're pointing fingers. Okay, (laughs) that's all I've got to ask. We all point fingers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, listen. Uh, if he can't play this year, if he's not going to play in the playoffs, no, I, I'm not for signing him in at all. I, I think you know what I'd like to see the Cowboys do is the next time they draft a wide receiver is draft one who can actually play. Uh, that <laughs> now, would, now. That, would be, that, would, that would be good. Or line up on side. That's all I'm asking. I don't ask a lot of these wide receivers. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, I mean, if he can't, you know, if he's not going to be able to play now, and I and and that is a red flag, right? That he hasn't worked out with these teams. Yes, you know, uh, and some of that could be in the thing like, hey, I'm I'm OBJ, I don't have to work out, you know. But I don't think that's it. I think he's, that he's, he's a thirty-year-old OBJ coming off his second significant knee injury. That this isn't like an an actor who has reached the stage of his career where he doesn't have to read for parts. Um, you know, you, you, you might like to think as an athlete, you've reached that stage, but you have not when coming off a significant injury, when you haven't played since the Super Bowl last year or been a part of any formalized structured, uh, practice session with any team, you have to show where you are physically. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's it. Uh, you know, uh, I, I was intrigued by what Chris Collinsworth said during that game uh, against the Colts. And, and he said, you know, he, he said if if the, the Cowboys should come up with six plays for him to run, these are the six plays. And then because the lack of attention that's, that, that we all have talked about all along, right? If you Who are you going to cover here? CeeDee Lamb is really starting to kind of pick it up. Michael Gallup starting to really pick it up here. You know, you can only cover so many guys. Uh, and then you got to worry about the running game as well with, for the Cowboys. Uh, they're, they're in a position now where you're right, it is a luxury, but it would sure be a nice luxury to have. Yeah, and, and that's uh, and that's it. And, and it's uh, – the other thing is you don't want to bring him in and disrupt what you have going well offensively now, right? And, and a lot of that is uh, the 12 personnel where they go with two tight ends and two wide receivers uh, because it gives a balanced look where the defenses don't know if Dallas is going to run or pass. Uh, and we've seen three tight ends in some situations because this team is leaning toward the run game now versus the pass. You don't want to – what Chris Collinsworth said makes a lot of sense. You just want – you want – some packages to throw in there, but it's not going to be your base package stuff. It's not going to be the majority of what you run. And in a bringing in an Odell Beckham Jr., you don't want to disrupt your offensive schemes either. I mean, you don't want to change those and go, well, now now we need to go more three wide receivers, so we won't go with the two tight ends as much. Well, now suddenly you're not as good in the running game, and the defense doesn't respect your running game as much, and it can – and it can give you more trouble in, in pass coverage. So th- there's a fine balance to strike here. And, and coming this late in the season, when the offense is operating at such a high level, uh, you have to respect that. So all of these things go into it. Like I said, um, b- before this visit, I was really I really felt, you know, if it was going to work out anywhere for him, it would be here. Um Let's just see how this plays out. And I still do believe that. If he signs anywhere this year, I do believe he'll be with the Cowboys. Um, But physically, is any team going to say, okay, well, let's go ahead and make this move now? We'll see. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I will say this, though, too. You know, two things really quickly about the wide receiver position. You know, you watch what A.J. Brown has done for the Eagles this year. I believe that he's as much a reason for their success as the development of Jalen Hurts is uh, because of the kind of receiver that he is. He's such a powerful guy, very much like Des Bryant uh, was. He runs a lot better routes than Des and all that, but he's a physical receiver, and the Cowboys don't have that at wide receiver. None of those guys are physical. You know, the interception uh, that Stephon Gilmore got when Michael Gallup made that play, that's all on Michael Gallup. You know, he, he turns, and you gotta you got to pass the either as Dak, Dak said after the game, you got to pass across his face, or you got to muscle through him to get that ball. You can't, you can't fall down. I mean that that's that's and that's the problem for the Cowboys at this point. And you know, I, I think if 
if they're looking for a receiver in the next draft, they need to look for one who's a little more physical. I think that would that would help them immensely. I, I think so. And I think uh, they will going forward. I think they're. Uh, and, and then you get into another one. You know, what do you pay Odell Odell Beckham Jr.? They did not keep Amari Cooper at twenty million. Uh, who is a better receiver at this stage than Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, because they didn't want that money and they that money on the books and they were projecting what you're going to have to pay uh, C.D. Lamb to keep him going forward. So why would you only pick up a fifth round pick for Amari Cooper in his prime to pay the same sort of contract to Odell Beckham Jr. who is past his prime? Uh, that doesn't make fiscal sense or or sense as far as building your roster. So, um, you know, for this to work, I think Odell Beckham Jr. would also have to agree to a uh, incentive laden contract, and then that's where you get into a well. Have have you not seen what my history is? Why should I uh, subject myself to that? It's uh, every athlete views that a little bit differently as as they get later in their careers and their career. Uh, they're they're no longer in peak form, so they're just a a lot a lot of factors to work through here, which is why he's spending two days here. All right, David, do you believe the Cowboys are fully committed to the running game? Because I I will say this is the longest stretch that I've seen them do that, but I always feel like that Kellen Moore's default switch is we got to go back to throwing the ball. You know, we we've got to throw it all over the place here to really win, and it seems to me he's been. Pretty patient with that and because as we see, and if you look at, at Dak's history, if he keeps it between 20 and 30 passes, that's when he's a winning quarterback. It, it's when he throws more than 30 passes is when they're, they're in trouble. Uh, do, you, do you feel like that, he, that Kellen Moore is fully committed to the run now and that this is their identity, this is who they're going to be? I think he is, but even in key stressful moments, you always return to what your inclination is, right? So I I think there are certain plays or times or situations within a game where let's say if you're facing a third and four and uh, Kellen has has called a run play, but also gives Dak Prescott the option uh, based on what the look is to call out of that to go to a pass play which is not unusual. That's usually how things are structured. I, I would think um, Kellen Moore being a former quarterback and Dak, and Dak Prescott being a current quarterback who has confidence in his ability to make the plays is going to say on a third and four or third and five, well, I have a better chance of picking up the first down with a pass than we do of a pitch around right in with Tony Pollard or Ezekiel Elliott based on what I'm seeing from the defense. So I'm going to opt out and and, and alter it to a, a, a pass play. I, I think that's where you see the, the slow erosion of the commitment to the run game. Uh, we did not see it against the Colts. We haven't seen it for a while, but I still think they are susceptible to that in certain moments of the game. Yeah, me too. That's what I'm worried about when this team really gets in the nitty gritty here as it gets in the playoff run, that that's what happens. Uh, you know, I don't have any problem at all if Dak wants to take off. You know, I mean, that, that is look, – look, let's look around. That's, that is Jalen Hurts' formula for success with the Eagles. Right? And I think that's why Dallas has gotten better in third down conversions and red zones this year is because the threat of Dak Prescott running is back, something we did not see last year. Yeah, absolutely. No, no question about it. All right. That's going to do it for our Cowboys segment of the podcast today. Now we're going to talk about the Rangers who, who, who got out and spent a little money over the weekend. Ray Davis 
Is he still a billionaire, Evan, or is he now officially broke? He's got plenty of money, and I think he's finally he's finally committed. Uh, I think to understanding that this is an organization that didn't have a farm system, and the farm system is just now starting to percolate in in real life. And the way to get back to contending is to invest money. Um, he's done it. He spent seven hundred and $65 million over the last 12 months on free agents, most recent being Jacob deGrom, and I don't think he's done this offseason. Um, I, I think that the Rangers are still going to add another pitcher. I don't know if that's going to come via a trade or free agency, and I think if it comes via trade, then maybe it allows the Rangers to spend a little bit more money on the on the bat that they would potentially pursue. Um but Ray Davis has is certainly he's certainly acting like an owner who is motivated to go out and win and understands that the quickest route the quickest route to that is to basically overhaul this roster with big time free agents. All right, now I'm going to ask you this, Evan, because uh, I've been getting this from people on Twitter, on uh, emails, uh, whatever. Uh, at our Christmas party, people are asking me this question. You know, what what is it, uh, you know, about giving this much money to one guy, Jacob deGrom, who's obviously the last three seasons, I think he's averaged 13 starts uh, over the last three seasons, which is not optimal, obviously. Um, and yet, shouldn't they have – taking that money and spent it elsewhere. And then, you know, people saying that should have spread it between two or three positions instead of one or just come down. And I got to tell you, uh, my feeling about this is, is that in the Rangers position, it's not like they were, uh, and I guess you can make the case that they're, they're not one player away from, you know, being a championship team or anything like that. Uh, this is a team that might as well just roll the dice uh, on, on Jacob and it is, it's not a obviously it's a big contract, but it's not a ten year deal. It's not a seven year deal. It's a five year deal with an option, right? Yeah, um, but I don't look at it as rolling the dice. I mean, I think rolling the dice is is not a great strategy. What I do think it it, it, it speaks to is that the Rangers uh, there there are some absolutes here, Kevin. I mean, we, they have gone into the off season acknowledging that they need multiple roster uh, additions. After signing DeGrom on Friday night, Chris Young said, our roster is still not complete. I think ownership understands that. I don't think it's so much a roll of the dice as it is, we've got some money and we're going to flex our muscles now. And if they can afford Jacob DeGrom, they know all the risks that are associated with him. But also, if he's healthy and when he's healthy, he is the best pitcher in Major League Baseball. And so as long as the Rangers are willing to go out and still address the needs that they have, which, as we've stated over and over again, are at least one more starting pitcher, a bat, and probably some kind of relief arm, uh, I, I think there's absolutely zero wrong with going out and signing Jacob deGrom and probably going into the season saying, look, we want to we aim for 22 to 25 starts. If we get more than that from you, Great, but if we get 22 or 25 absolutely ace-level starts, it changes the entire dynamic of the rotation. 
It changes the entire dynamic of how the bullpen is managed. It, 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 it pays for itself. It has a little bit of a feel here. Now, after you get the, you know, so the Mets sign uh, Verlander uh, to, to replace him in the rotation, you know, a two-year deal. I think it was $43 million a year. Um, and he's 40 years old. He's five years. Now, obviously, he's been very durable and, and uh, done a great job. But he is 40 years old. Uh, so, to me, did the did the Mets – uh, from from their standpoint, and I don't not that I care that much about the Mets. I just like to talk about the argument that the sour grapes thing. Well, we didn't really want Jacob Degrom anyway. We took Justin Verlander. Well, let me let me say this, and I'm sure I'll be tarred and feathered if anybody is listening to this in in New York City. But um, the New York media group knows it's a very passionate fan base and plays to it, and. So Jacob DeGrom signed somewhere else after all of this speculation about DeGrom back to the Mets, DeGrom back to the Mets, and, and all of that, he signed somewhere else, and the stories immediately are going to be about the narrative about, oh, how he didn't fit, and the contract's too big, and the contract's too this, and the contract's too that. You can always say the same thing about spending $43 million on a 40-year-old 40 40 pitcher. Um, why get rid of the guy that you had and that you knew and who had, had success there? for a 40-year-old pitcher. I, I think both teams ended up with really good pitchers that fit where they're at at the time being. DeGrom, if he's healthy, has probably more years in his arm. Verlander, with a two-year deal, that option for a third year, this is a guy who's trying to put the final touches on his career. And going into that rotation with Max Scherzer, with whom he once shared a very good Detroit rotation, a decade ago, uh, gives them, again, a great number one-two combination. Will they have that for the full year? That's what they're betting on where they didn't have it with DeGrom. But let me just let me say this, Kevin. Simplify everything down. Their first move was to try and bring Jacob DeGrom back, not to go and get Justin Verlander. When they didn't get DeGrom, then they turned to Verlander. Yeah. So how much, how close does this make the, uh, or how much closer does this make the Rangers to the Astros now? Well, I mean, the Astros lost Verlander, the Rangers gained Degrom. That's pretty significant. Um, but again, the Rangers, the the rest of the Rangers roster still is incomplete compared to the the uh, the Astros, right? Um, we can talk about some comparisons in the infield where I think the Rangers match up pretty well. Uh, the outfield, I think, is still a work in progress, especially as long as Houston has Kyle Tucker and Jordan Alvarez out there. And the Rangers the Rangers rotation has improved. The Astros has, has seemingly diminished a little bit, but it's, it, it remains to be seen just how much the Rangers have caught up there. Right now, I, I, I think that what the Astros are riding with Valdez and Urquidy and, and uh, Christian Javier and the guys they've got coming up, colors, it, it, it's a pretty stout rotation that has worked together for a while. Um, Martin Perez is coming off a career year. Hopefully he repeats that. John Gray uh, had a good year when he was healthy. Hopefully he can give the Rangers more like 25 or 28 starts this year. Jaco Odorizzi is a number five starter, and he's a good number five starter. But I think the Rangers still need to go out and add another pitcher, probably to either pitch in the four spot or, or even better, 
slide into the number three spot ahead of Perez and let Perez pitch four. And for me, that guy has always been going into this whole process, probably Jamison Tyone. I, I just think the lack of walks in the innings he's pitched the last couple of years uh, really make him attractive. Uh, he also doesn't have a qualifying offer uh, attached, which would seem like a minor deal at this point in time. Look, you've given up three draft picks over the past two years. What's giving up a fourth draft pick if you're going all in? Uh, but there's also this model of if you want to be sustainable, giving up second and third round picks every year is not exactly, uh, they're, they're not great building blocks for success. So I think Tyone, I think Michael Waka, um, I think perhaps Chris Bassett, and I think Nathan Yavaldi are all in that mix, though Yavaldi and, and Bassett both do have qualifying offers attached. So that may complicate matters a little bit. Now you, you threw a little monkey wrench at me the other day when you wrote that, uh, the Rangers were pretty okay with Jonah Heim, and they they might even be interested in Sean Murphy. You didn't say they they were, but they could be uh, interested in him uh, as a as a replacement. I I think that look, the Rangers are happy with Jonah Heim. I think that uh, there were some questions that developed certainly over the latter stages of the year when his workload crept up close to a hundred games. He's a great pitch framer, but Sean Murphy is also pretty much recognized as the gold standard in the American League right now in terms of catching. Um, you look back at Bruce Bochy's times, uh, particularly with San Francisco, he had a franchise catcher in Buster Posey. Does he want that here in Texas? Um, I'm sure he'd like it, and I'm sure he's not yet sure if Jonah Hahn is that guy or not. Um, but if the A's are going to make Sean Murphy available – you can bet the Rangers are at least going to investigate. I think the price for the Rangers would be too high, and I think it would complicate a lot of things. I think Oakland would be looking for something like Nathaniel Lowe in a deal for for uh, for Sean Murphy. Um, and then you create a hole at first base. You solve something at, at, at catcher. Now you've got an overabundance of catchers. Do you trade Heim for pitching? It, it creates a lot more moves, and I think the – overall improvement to the club would be marginal, but any improvement is, is, is worth considering. Where did they come in war at catcher in relation to the rest of the league this last year? Do you know? Off the top uh, of I, I'd have to go look it up. Uh, Heim was in the top. Heim was in the top 10 and that's what you need to know. Yeah. So to, to me, you could probably improve a catcher, but I, I think that that Heim is young, still young and has stands a chance of improvement. It's not you're not getting enough of an improvement at a position where you're. It's not like left field, uh, where the Rangers are clearly at the bottom of the league. Uh, let's let's fix the things that are really that need to be fixed and not worry so much about the things that you could improve. But it's not that big a deal. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think right now that the if I'm the Rangers, my priority list is. Um, Turning the free agent, the, the the trade market to see if I can get Pablo Lopez or Herman Marquez for a for a reasonable price, and if I can, then that gives me some cost certainty on pitching, and it allows me to go out and explore what I think is the real the real offensive need, which is a left fielder. Michael Conforto is sitting out there; he doesn't have a qualifying offer attached to him. Could he be a guy that you sign to one of those kind of like pillow contracts? He's a Scott Boris agent, a Scott Boris client. Um, who maybe want might want an opt out after a year if he proves himself good and 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 you hope that some of your guys like I wouldn't put it past the world for Evan Carter to be ready by the end of the year 
And so if you've got if you've got that, maybe that's the way to go. Yeah. I'd love to see Evan Carter finally develop, uh, 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 or not him. He's come along really fast, but I'd like to see the, the, the Rangers develop somebody who came up through the minor leagues like gangbusters and they weren't just betting on him to be good. That seems to be the pretty much the, uh, uh, the MO yeah. for the Rangers the last few years. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I saw Scott Service yesterday and we were, we were talking um, about their two teams. And I, I, I we, he mentioned how the Rangers are spending money and, Everybody in baseball mentioned how the Rangers are spending money. But I also mentioned to him, you know, you've got a franchise player who you didn't just bet on, but you developed a franchise player in Julio Rodriguez. And that gives your team some cost certainty. It gives them uh, a, a top, top player. And it's the kind of thing that the Rangers have yet to develop over the over the last 10 years. That's right. All right. That's going to do it for our Rangers segment. We're going to do a little bit of a quick hit potpourri here all right boys uh we, we need to talk about the the fact that tcu not only got into the cfp the first texas school to make the college football playoff uh they hung it third after a loss which was really something i was uh i was uh prized and simply uh prized and simply surprised and pleased that the, that the committee saw fit to do that and not drop them uh, out and not even drop them a spot. Uh, so were, were you guys, first of all, David, were you surprised that the that TCU was in at three? I was surprised. Surprised. Was actually, I, I, I like that. The, yeah. I, I like that there are certain words that just kind of organically form. I think that yeah. was one that actually did fit the situation. If you're I, really pleased and you're surpreased. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, right. It has a place. Pleasantly yeah. surprised anymore. Just say you're pleased. <laughs> I, I, I'll go back to an old school word. I was shocked. I, yeah. I, I really did think in the climate and what we had seen up to this point from the committee that I, I – the fact that TCU did not move. Now, the fact it went into overtime, and actually you could say they lost on some questionable play calls late. Uh, You know, I I think that actually aided uh, their ability to stay there. Uh, You know, I'm convinced, but if they would have lost by 10 points, I don't think they would have been in there. You know, I I think they would have been knocked out. But, uh, again, here's a committee – how bad did Ohio State look? You know, they lost to a team that's one of the final four teams, and they just weren't even competitive. And now the committee's going, "Oh yeah, you belong. Come on in." And yeah. uh, but but I thought well, the, the yeah. specter of Alabama as well. Uh, yeah. You know, two losses, both on the last plays of the game, both the top ten teams. You know, that they they were certainly were an attractive, uh, you know, uh, possibility. Uh, except for the fact that the committee has never taken a team with two losses, yeah. uh, but we all knew that we all know the the romance with Alabama, uh, and then especially when Nick Saban was doing a lot of politicking for that as well. So, Evan, how about you? Did you did you were you surprised, or did you think that was right? What what, what would happen? Uh, I, I think the um, the word I would use is that I was skeptical all weekend about exactly what would happen. Um, I thought they would stay in. I thought once USC lost, TCU was in for sure. Um, and particularly, USC lost in pretty convincing fashion and without Caleb Williams and, and with an unhealthy Caleb Williams. So I, I, I wasn't really shocked that they stayed in. I was surprised that they stayed at three. 
And I don't know if they stayed at three because the committee thought they deserved to be at three or if the committee just didn't want an Ohio State-Michigan rematch right away, especially since that game was so non-competitive. Um, I, I, I don't I, – I, I listened to some snippets of, of Nick Saban and, you know, the man's imposing and he can, he can make a persuasive argument, but – I'm sorry, I just couldn't put Alabama in with two losses. Uh, USC kicked itself right out. Um, there just wasn't there, – there, there just weren't it, – it, the rest of football made it easy on the committee. There just weren't any other options. In truth, in truth, Georgia should probably have a bye into the championship game. As it is, they're going to play an Ohio State team that does concern me a little bit, although I guess um, Jackson Nigba is not going to – not going to play. He's opted out for the NFL draft or to get ready for the draft. But well, he, he apparently was not going to play anyway. I, I health, some health issues. Yeah, he was not medically cleared to play. That was why he did it. I, that, that that caused a lot of stink. You know that. Oh my gosh, how could a guy opt out and not play in the CFP? Well, he wasn't going to play anyway. So so I I, I don't uh, Ohio State always concerns you, but I I, I still feel like the. Georgia's a class above the other two teams, and and that's what we're that's what we're playing this college playoff. Well, I tell you what, it, they the committee did TCU an awful big favor because I don't know if they can beat Michigan, but I sure know that it's going to be a lot easier to beat Michigan than it would be to beat Georgia. So at least you get to hang around for a little bit. You hate to get there, and then you're out uh, in the in the semis. So I, I think this is a this is a good thing for TCU. I I think that that maybe uh, Sonny Dykes learned a little bit of a lesson too, that when it comes right down to it and you got to win a game, put the ball in the hands of your Heisman uh, trophy. Probably my guess is he's going to be the runner up uh, to Caleb Williams, uh, but put it in his hands. Don't, don't turn around and stick it in the stomach of a, a running back on two tries. Even if that running back is really very good, by the way, Quentin Johnston, the, the wide receiver for TCU, Todd McShay said uh, uh, over the weekend he's probably going to be a top 15 pick. That's that's the one thing that TCU has done this year is the big play. They've been very, very good with dropping uh, big plays on other teams. Quentin Johnston is one reason. Obviously, Max Duggan is another, and Kendra Miller is the third. All right, uh, that's going to do it for our college football. In the time we have left, I just want to bring up really quickly about the Mavericks. They're all over the map. They, they just they – just, Killed uh, Phoenix uh, last night. This is on Tuesday as we're taping this. David, where are the Mavericks? Who are the Mavericks? You know, is this team capable of working out its problems here and getting back to where it did last year? Or is it still going to be, are they still lacking too much having the third facilitator unless Kimball Walker really comes through? And let me ask you that, I guess, specifically. Do you believe Kimball Walker has anything left? I believe on certain nights he will have something left, but will he be able to contribute on a continuing basis where it it allows you to play the way you want to play night in and night out? To me, that's the biggest question with Kimba Walker. Uh, You know, you you will have a a game or or a week where it's like, oh, okay, this is working. You know, in some ways it's like you had here before with the player who was traded, whose name shall not be mentioned, where, you know, he would have big games and you go, oh, this is what you can be, but he wasn't in the lineup enough for you to ever obtain that goal because you lack consistency. That's what you're talking about with Kimba Walker for a different reason. It's health and just where he is in his career. So 
I think they'll be better, but it, it's, it's consistency and continuity, which is what they need. And, and they're a quarter of the way through the season here, and they really haven't settled on a rotation. And some guys are still questioning exactly what their role is. And you would like to be a little farther along than that right now. Yeah, they they forced two guys into the rotation early. I, I know I don't want to say forces. It was still early. You just play them, but neither Javale McGee nor uh, Reggie Bullock were playing well. Uh, in, and while they were in the top, while they were both starting, uh, and that just wasn't working. And I and I got to tell you, I like Reggie Bullock a lot. He's a great defender, but I'm never confident of that shot. When when he when he takes a shot, I'm never confident this is going in. Uh, and so. Uh, and that's what he's there for, right? I mean, there's sure. that's the, the you know he's there for the, he's a classic three and D. So um, I, I, I'm still waiting to see what's going to happen with this team. I, I'm, I'm not really sure what to make of Josh Green all of a sudden playing so well and what that means. He seems to me like a guy you ought to bring off the bench because of the energy that he brings. That, that, that uh, I know Tim Callishaw in the roundtable the other day thinks that he should start. I, I don't see him. Uh, as a starter, at least not right now in this part of his career. He, he seems to be a, an energy guy. I, I think that Spencer Dinwiddie probably is better coming off the bench as well as a guy running that second unit when it comes in. And then maybe if, if Kimball Walker can start, that that would look good. But, but obviously we need to find out what uh, what kind of shape that uh, Kimba's in and what kind of shape his, his arthritic knee is in. Uh, what what do you, Which lineup do you like best right now? Well... Dinwiddie right now, probably with the second unit, but but the way they're constructed, I don't know that you can really go that way, you know, and uh, I I do think Hardaway's starting to play a little bit better here coming back off that injury, and and if he gets back to what he was before the injury, um, I I think this thing has a little bit of a different look. Obviously, they have to figure out how they're going to play Christian Wood and what his role is, but it, it needs to be a significant role. Um, I, I will say it's it's somewhat in, encouraging that after uh, another close to inexplicable loss against a short, uh, you know, uh, an undermanned Detroit team, that they have come back and, and had two decisive victories against the Knicks and then came back in what they did against the Suns. So they have responded to what has been their Achilles heel this season, which is playing down to the level of the opponent. Um, but is is this just a a uh, temporary response to another disappointment or uh, is this turning the corner and kind of locking in and, and uh, being better, you know, they, they just haven't been nearly as good defensively. And a lot of that is effort and a lot of that is commitment. And so you have to question their overall discipline and commitment early in the season. Um, and again, it is early, but we've already passed the quarter point. So it's, uh, yeah, you should I, be further along in this. You know, we, we keep talking about the shooting and how they're not making the threes like they did last year, and that was a big formula for their success, uh, which overcame a lot of the, the other weaknesses that they had, one of which was rebounding. But the rebounding uh, margin is even worse this year. Yeah, I mean, they, they gave up 60 rebounds to Detroit the other day. You know, 60. I mean, that, that's just unbelievable. So uh, I, I don't understand, you know, we kind of give Dorian Finney-Smith a pass. You know, he plays hard. He's a good guy. You know, like him. But he's he's really not done anything this year. You know, and I, I give Maxi Kleber a little bit of credit. In the game last night, he, he kind of dribbled up instead of just taking a three and took a nice little short jumper in the lane. That's something that he has lacked. But so has so Finney-Smith. He's lacked the same thing. You know, these are – 
these don't seem like huge things to me to be adding to your arsenal. It's just like Tim Hardaway's had back-to-back games now where he's got seven or eight rebounds. You know, he's certainly capable of doing something like that. He's an athletic guy. You know, there's no reason for him not to be doing that. And just to expect these guys year after year, I'm just going to stand out here in the perimeter and wait for for Luca to throw it to me, and I'll, I'll jack one up. I mean, you know, at some point, these guys, uh, and they're young guys, uh, need to be developing and, and, and putting together different parts of their game. Now, you know, there, there's a reason why they've assembled all these parts is because, well, they're, they're not really complete players. They, they have certain roles that they play very well, and the Mavericks maximized those last year, and that all worked out really well. But as we know, you, you, you know, things change in the league and, and teams change, and it's not, it's, it's not an organic thing. It has, to, it has to keep changing all the time. So we'll, we'll see what the, uh, the Mavericks can do here going forward. I'm obviously a little encouraged by the last couple of games, and things did look a little bit better, especially when they're uh, not uh, forcing Luka to, to be bringing up the ball all the time and to be uh, dominated so much and seeing so many double and triple teams. That's just, that's just untenable. You can't do that going forward. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week, fellas. Thanks for uh, joining us, and everybody's on the road and doing different things, uh, but we we appreciate that. We'll uh, be back next week for a little bit more, and uh, we'll see how uh, some of these things put these things together and how the Cowboys do this week against the Texans. What a rivalry that is, isn't it? Dallas and Houston football. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. People every year. That's all you hear. That's all you hear. It's, it's brutal. It's, you know, as a lifelong Texan and a guy who spent almost all but one year of my life in either Dallas or Houston, it's ridiculous. Come on. We gotta, this has got to be a rivalry, doesn't it? You would think so, but maybe not. All right, so from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye.